0: Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, I don't know about you, but I love a good courtroom drama. I'm drawn in uh, when the guilty guy is tried when the bad guy gets charged and when the right verdict is reached when justice is served my inner lawyer i don't know if you have an inner lawyer my inner lawyer wants to cheer but there's another type of courtroom drama and it's it's actually sometimes they're intermixed aren't they it's where the innocent is falsely accused where the good guy is framed and where the wrong verdict is entertained. For some reason that that pulls something deeper inside of me and I want the innocent to be cleared, to be vindicated, to be shown, to be right. Well today is our last sermon in our Summer in the Psalms series and I want to ask the question this morning, Where do you go when you are wronged? Where do you go when you are wronged? Because as we come come to Psalm chapter 7, this is exactly what's going on. Uh, Don Carson uh, calls this the rhetoric of outrage, a candid call for justice, the venting of confusion and terror that has little in common with cool discourse but a great deal in common with a sudden scream. <laughs> I think it's a good description. You see, David here is being pursued. Verse 1, he says, Save me from all of my pursuers and deliver me. I don't know if you've ever had that dream where, um, where someone is following you. You start walking, they start walking. You walk a little faster, they walk a little faster. You start jogging, pretending not to be frightened, they start jogging as well. Until you find yourself running for your life, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, and they've just about got you, and then suddenly you wake up drenched in sweat and your heart's thumping. Well, that nightmare had become David's reality. David was literally, for much of his life, running for his life. And there's a real sense of helplessness here, isn't there? We look at verse 2, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with no one to deliver. Now, all this sounds quite extreme, I think, quite graphic, but it's interesting, isn't it, that the thing here is that David is not actually talking... Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about... Words. Did you notice that? He's talking about words. Note the heading of this psalm. Uh, it's a shigion uh, of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we don't know exactly who Cush was. Um, is not mentioned anywhere else. Um, uh, but like Saul... King Saul, who hated David. And like Shimei, I don't know if you remember him from 2 Samuel 16, he shouted curses at David and threw stones at him. Cush, like those guys, was a Benjamite. And we don't know exactly what it was that Cush said to David to inspire him to write this psalm. But like verse 3 and and like verse 4 suggest, I think we get the impression here, don't we, that David was under attack under criticism, accusation, slander. You can see the things that he's trying to defend himself there in those verses. Verses 3 and 4. Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, well done what? If there is wrong in my hand, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered an enemy without cause. Perhaps these words by Cush were whispered in secret behind closed doors, behind David's back, you know. Did you know? Have you heard? Yeah, David's actually Uh, anti-Saul. Have you heard um, that that David's actually trying to usurp the throne from Saul? He's against the Lord's anointed. That he's actually a power-hungry kind of guy. He's he's just greedy for glory, that's David. He's actually against the kingdom. Treachery was being whispered, perhaps. You know, I mean, if David's own brother's thought little more of David, you can only imagine, can't you, what a Benjamite might think of David. Or, perhaps these words weren't whispered in secret, perhaps they were broadcast in public to ruin his reputation, to undermine his integrity, to destroy his future. A media smear campaign against David that saw him tried, sentenced and hung before any legal proceeding had ensured. Whatever it was, it's all exacerbated here, isn't it, for David, because of David's innocence. You can see that there in verses 3 to 5, this oath that David takes, O oh Lord my God if I've done this, if there is any wrong in my hand, if i repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause let the enemy pursue my soul he's trying to get away from his pursuers but here he says, look let the enemies pursue my soul, if this is really true overtake it, let them let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust it's an oath of innocence David is emphatically denying the wrong that he's being accused of doing. Like Job, I don't know if you remember that famous chapter in Job, chapter uh, 31, where Job, too, takes an oath of innocence. It's it's in the form of a curse. It's a curse formula. If this, then that. If my arm has done this, let it fall off. If my mouth has spoken these words, let me be dumb forever. It's that kind of, of thing, isn't it? If this, then that. Now David's not um, he's not claiming perfection here or sinlessness. He's not boasting in his own righteousness. He's just saying he's simply saying in fact he's protesting. In this matter, as far as these charges are concerned, with respect to this, I'm innocent. It's unfair, undeserved, unprovoked, unjust. He's been framed. These are false accusations, trumped-up charges, lies. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, in fact, David could actually prove his innocence. Uh, I don't know if you, you remember the scene where David and his men were hiding in the cave. Do you remember that scene? I don't know how long he held on to that piece of fabric. Exhibit A. In the case of, against David, the hem of Saul's robe. He could have taken his life. It's interesting as you read those chapters, Saul is never without his spear. Wherever he is, he's always got his spear beside him. And how many times, how many times did he hurl it at David? And David could so easily on numerous occasions, have taken Saul's life, and yet he didn't, did he? And here he, he, he takes this oath of innocence in this matter. It's not true. See, here's the thing. This is where the rubber hits the road, where it relates to you and me. You see, chances are that this to a greater or lesser extent, will happen to you too. Whether it's in the playground, or in the office, or maybe the work site. And I want to say, especially, especially if you're a Christian. Because we too have an enemy Satan, his name means the accuser, the father of lies, and we're told that he is prowling around, pursuing us. Uh, Jesus told us that, in fact, this is the way that they persecuted the prophets who were before us. This is what they did. And this is the way they treated Jesus himself. It's interesting, as you read the Gospel narratives, it's interesting how the Gospels are, isn't it? That you've got all this, this very short and rapid succession of things in Jesus' ministry and then this long, drawn-out process. And what is that process? The Passion narrative. Two, two words, three words, they crucified him, is all the Gospel writers give to the physical sufferings of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? But chapter after chapter, paragraph after paragraph, piling it up to describe the verbal trial of Jesus, the false accusations charged against him, the words, the mocking. That's what's the, what the Gospel writers are concerned about. Isn't, it? isn't that interesting? That's how they treated the prophets. That's how they treated Jesus. And Jesus explicitly says that people will insult you persecute you, and will falsely say. That's a verbal thing. Words, all kinds of evil against you falsely for me, because of me, because you're a follower of Jesus. And the world, of course, loves it. Anything anti-Christian, straight to the top of the news pile, isn't it? And so it's so important for us to recognize this, that the Bible, you see, is not just a book that says that we are guilty sinners, as true as as an important reality as that is. The Bible is also a book that cries out for those who have been sinned against. Isn't that true? And the Psalms, especially, are a protest from God to God for us against innocent suffering, injustice. And in fact, laments like this Psalm constitute the largest group of Psalms. Over 60 of the Psalms are given over to this. Most of the Psalms follow this pattern, this formula, uh, this raw honesty moving from trouble to trust, moving from anguish to assurance, moving from the pain inside to a praise that goes outside. You see, I want to ask you the question this morning, where do you go when you are wronged? David, verse 1, made the Lord his refuge... the Psalms often use this word, refuge, to depict God. They use similar words like rock. You're my rock. In the storms of life, during World War II, a lot of the Jews made for themselves a safe place, behind a bookshelf perhaps, in an attic, in a loft, behind a false wall. A safe place they could run from the pursuers, And you see what David is saying here, he is saying that God is my hiding place. That's where I run. That's where I go to for security, for safety, for comfort. Because it's true, isn't it, that even a small coin can block out the light of a sun if you hold it close enough to your eyes. Isn't that true? And so David starts not with the problem, however big they were for him. He starts rather with God, his refuge. That's where he starts, number one. Number two, isn't it interesting here that David turns to song? Nobody knows really what a shigai on. I don't even know how to say the word. No one really knows what one of those is. But we do know that it's something that David sang to the Lord. Music ministered to the soul of David, even as it ministered to a demon-possessed soul. And there's a scene, um, I don't know if you've seen it, um, one of the earlier episodes of The Crown, where Prince Philip is visiting a small Welsh town uh, called Aberfan after that horrific mining accident in 1966 uh, that affected a whole school. Uh, it, 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 It gives the scene where Prince Philip is returning to London and the Queen approaches him, he's pouring himself a drink, and she asks him, how was it? He replies, extraordinary. Grief, the anger at the government, at the coal board, And at God too. 81 children were buried today. The rage on all the faces, behind all the eyes. But they didn't smash things up. They didn't fight in the streets. What did they do, the Queen said? They sang. The whole community. He said it was the most astonishing thing I've ever heard a hymn. Now, I don't know if that dialogue was for the movie, but the events are true. They did sing. I think the Welsh know how to do it better. And surely that's what David is doing here in the Psalms, in Psalm 7. Singing through the tears, singing through the grief, singing through the trouble. He asks God in verse 6, Get up! Arise! He, He tells the Lord, Lift yourself up! He screams to Yahweh, Wake up! Wake up for me! You have appointed a judgment. And David longs for his day in court. David envisages the day of judgment a room for all the peoples where god is seated as judge over all verse 7 let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it return on high verse 8 the lord judges the people judge me o lord according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me verse 9 oh let the evil the wi- evil of the wicked come to an end let it come to an end god we're sick of it Establish the righteous. You know what he's saying? What is he doing here? He's running to his refuge. He's singing with all his heart, through his tears. And he's handing it over to God. He's saying... And this is why we had that reference, that Bible reading from Romans, chapter 12. He's saying, isn't he, in this psalm vengeance is yours God, you do it, you repay, test the minds and the hearts, never mind what other people are saying God, you know the truth, the motivations, the thoughts, the intentions of my heart, you know God, David's shield is with God, that's where his protection comes from. You see, verse 11, God feels indignation every day. God is not indifferent. God is not cool and calm and distant. He sharpens his sword, verse 12. He's bent and readied his bow Verse 12, verse 13, he makes his arrows, fiery darts. God is a warrior. He's not just the judge, the rock and the refuge. He is weaponized, isn't he? In these verses. And he's ready, he's set, he's primed, he's ready to go. But how is it that God executes justice? How does God do it? Now, this this is not all the Bible says about this in Psalm 7, but it is part of it, isn't it? Verse 14, how does God bring his justice? Behold, the wicked conceive evil. Verse 14, they are pregnant with mischief and they give birth to lies. The brother of Jesus, James, described the same process. He said, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, you see, sin doesn't stay the same, it grows up. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Or, David says, let me give you another picture. There's one picture, pregnancy, that's what it's like, giving birth to lies. Let me give you another picture, David says. It's like a person digging a hole for someone else to fall into. But instead, he himself falls into it. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament of Esther? It's a beautiful story. Actually, it's a horrific story, isn't it? Uh, Evil uh, Haman builds a gallows for his arch enemy, the Jew Mordecai. But as the end of the story unfolds, guess what happens? Haman hangs on his own gallows and Mordecai is paraded through the streets. Isn't it interesting, the irony of how God brings his justice? Or let me give you another picture. Conception and birth, digging a hole and falling into it. Let me give you the Aussie picture, the Australian picture. It was Australia Day yesterday. It's like verse 16, the mischief that he devises returns upon his own head. It's a boomerang. It's not karma. You know what goes around comes around. It's not that. It's not an impersonal mechanism of nature. It's actually God's moral world. It's God's wrath revealed from heaven, giving us over. Letting us break ourselves against his commandments. It's God sovereignly orchestrating things and ultimately setting a day when he would judge the world in righteousness. And so, David is free free to forgive, free to love his enemies. Free to give thanks, to give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. Verse 17, he's free. Free to sing to the name of the Lord Most High. I wonder where will you go when you are wronged? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please lead us in your ways, especially when we are wronged. Please keep our hearts from bitterness and our minds and our actions and our words from revenge. Help us learn to lament like David. And so give us his thanksgiving and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.